There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As the crisis at the southern border has continued to attract national attention, something Joe Biden said at his last press conference has stuck with me. It's not like somebody sitting on a hand-hewn table in Guatemala, I mean, in somewhere in Mexico or in, in Guadalupe saying, I got a great idea. Let's sell everything we have. Give it to a coyote. Have them take our kids across the border into a desert where they don't speak the language. Won't that be fun? Let's go. That's not how it happens. People don't want to leave. When my great-grandfather got in a coffin ship in the Irish Sea, expectation was, was he, was he going to live long enough on that ship to get to the United States of America. But they left because of what the Brits have been doing. I'm Ryan Grimm, and this is Deconstructed. What the Brits had been doing was one of the great crimes of the 19th century. We know it today as the potato famine. But as anybody raised with a bit of pride in their Irish heritage knows, a lack of food was not Ireland's real problem. The potato blight, after all, affected crops all over Europe, but it was only the Irish who starved. The problem was that the British government was intent on disciplining their Irish subjects and carrying out an economic experiment on their bodies. Efforts in the British Parliament to end the starvation were beaten back in the most bigoted terms. Charles Edward Trevelyan, the official in charge of relief efforts, famously said of the famine, the judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson. He was a radical free market ideologue and opposed any government intervention to subsidize food prices or offer direct relief. Food continued to be exported during the famine. A million or more people died over a few short years, and another two million fled. By the end of it, the Irish population had dropped by a staggering 25%. The lingering resentment toward the British fueled demands for Irish independence, which finally came in 1922 and ultimately contributed to the formation of the IRA and the Northern Irish Uprising known as the Troubles. For the details, there's a great show called the Irish History Podcast, hosted by Finn DeWire, that goes through it blow by blow. Here he is reading a letter that Frederick Engels wrote to Karl Marx about the devastation Engels witnessed in 1856, a full five years after the famine ended, when Engels was touring Ireland. Throughout the West, but especially in the region around Galway, the country is covered with these ruins of peasants' cottages, most of which have been abandoned only since 1846. I never understood before that famine could be such a tangible reality. Whole villages are deserted, and there amongst them lie the splendid parks of the lesser landlords, who are almost the only people who live there now. Famine, emigration, and clearances together have accomplished this. Here, there are not even cattle to be seen in the fields. The land is an utter desert, which nobody wants. For our purposes, it's enough to understand that Joe Biden knows this history very deeply in his bones, as he might say. In 2013, he was inducted into the Irish American Hall of Fame. During his acceptance speech, he told a story about something his Aunt Gertie said to him when he was a boy. Now, Joey, your father's not a bad man. 
It never crossed my mind that my father was a bad man. And then she'd go on to say, I swear to God, it's true. She'd say, it's not his fault he's English, Joey. It's not his fault he's English. In his address to the Irish-American audience, Biden talked about the stories he'd heard from his family about his great-grandparents. I don't know how many of you were told the kind of things I was told by, uh, about my great-grandfather and my, uh, my great-uncle, uh, everything from the black and tans that they fought in the IRA. They weren't even in, they weren't even in Ireland and they fought in the IRA. My great-grandfather uh, blew it. He was of the class of 79 of, of Lafayette University and uh, was a mining engineer. By 79, of course, he means 1879. Uh, when he ran for the state senate in the state of Pennsylvania in 1904, these newspaper articles my uncle Ed left me, uh, accusing him of being a Molly Maguire. You know the Molly Maguires. Uh, he denied it. We all hoped it had been true. Um, <laughs> they hoped it was true because having a Molly Maguire in the family tree is a serious boon to your Irish-American cred. The Mollies were one of the many secret societies that had been a major part of Ireland's political economy for centuries. Their namesake, the original Molly Maguire, was an Irish widow who launched an organization called the Anti-Landlord Agitators in the 1840s. The fight between those landlords and those people working on the land was central to how the famine unfolded. The landlords, who were allied with the British elite, were effectively starving people off their land, seizing it from families that had been working it for centuries but had no legal claim to it under British rule. In the U.S., the Molly Maguires emerged in the 1860s in Pennsylvania coal country and were concentrated among mine workers. They got the Hollywood treatment in 1970, the first year Biden ran for elected office. They were Irish. They were Catholic. They were rebels. They won't stop now. That's the meaning of it. They won't stop, so we can't stop. These men take justice into their own hands. They're the Molly Maguires. There's still contentious debate about what exactly the Molly Maguires were, and I'd again direct you to the Irish History Podcast for more detail. But there's no doubt how their story ended. The Irish mine workers were infiltrated by covert strike breakers from the Pinkerton Agency, which worked, and still works, for major corporations looking to keep their workers in check. It happened during what was known as the Long Strike of the 1870s. In 1877, 20 Irishmen, thanks to what was likely perjured testimony from the Pinkertons, were executed for alleged involvement with the gang of workers. Sean Connery plays one of those men, Black Jack Keough, in the movie. This court sentences you, John Keough, Frank McAndrew, and Thomas Doherty, to be confined to the county prison until the date of your execution, when you shall be hanged by the neck until dead. Mass execution was the most extreme form of discrimination that Irish workers faced, but discrimination against immigrants was rampant in the 1840s and onward, reshaping American politics. As the Democrats became a pro-immigrant, pro-slavery party, the nativist know-nothings briefly surged to national prominence. That gave Lincoln a path to power by straddling the line on immigration while opposing slavery. When Republicans in Congress amended the Constitution to give freed black men the franchise, they made sure to leave in loopholes intended to block Irish and German immigrants from voting, since at the time they voted Democratic. Most people think the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, started because of African Americans. It was an anti-immigration movement as well. There were too many of us Catholics coming. In the late 1800s, this sentiment generated an entire political movement known as the Know Nothing Party. In 1892, the New York Times wrote, of our ancestors the following. 
It is next to impossible to penetrate this mass of protected, secluded humanity with modern ideas. Where they halt, they stay. And where they stay, they multiply and cover the earth. That was a quote. In researching this episode, I stumbled on a coincidence too fun not to share. As Biden noted, his great-grandfather, Edward Francis Blewett, served in the Pennsylvania State Senate, and Biden was always told that Blewett was the first Irish Catholic to do so. Uh, when he ran for the state Senate in Pennsylvania, and I'm told, I, don't, I haven't been able to verify this, part of the legend, the first Irish Catholic senator in the state of Pennsylvania. Well, I did try to verify it, and it's not exactly right. That would be State Senator William McSherry, who served from 1813 to 1817, representing where else but McSherry's town. His son, James, was in the state Senate during the Civil War, so that makes Blewett the third. While Joe Biden's great-grandfather was serving the state Senate representing Lackawanna County, there was an Irish Catholic state representative in Luzerne County, which is just across the line from Scranton. That state rep, Patrick Francis Boyle, was my own great-great-grandfather something I had never been told before. At the age of five, with his family, he fled County Donegal for Philadelphia, driven out of Ireland at the height of the famine. The advantage that my family had, and the one Biden's family had, was that they were able to emigrate as families. Plenty of orphans, of course, came across the ocean as unaccompanied minors, but that wasn't because American immigration policy forced them to do it that way. It's a distinction Biden discussed at length in front of the Irish audience. Today, our legal immigration system, though well-intended, has the effect of keeping families separated. America is about family. We Irish are about family. My grandfather, when he came a year ahead of his family, would not have stayed were it not able to bring his family, and I mean his whole family, with him. Because that's about what happened. What did we do when we got here? We built communities. We weren't a polygon of individuals. We were about family, about neighborhood, about community. That's who the hell we are. But today, most people don't realize today, a naturalized American has to wait a minimum of 12 years for the opportunity to bring his brother or his sister to join him. That's a system that needs to be changed and can be changed. There are a ton of parallels between the exodus from Central America today and the one from Ireland when the Boyles and Finnegans arrived. First, both of them begin in one way or another in the ground. The potato blight that ruined several years of crops in a row was a product of globalization. As the English had brought the potato from the Americas, creating an unstable monocrop system that allowed a single fungus to rip through everything. In Central America, climate change has steadily made the region simply less livable. It's something AOC touched on this week. Because it's not a border crisis, it's an imperialism crisis, it's a climate crisis, it's a trade crisis. Well, number one, our solutions need to be rooted in foreign policy because our interventionist history in foreign policy over decades of destabilizing regions. But people don't want to have that conversation. Just as the British drove the Irish to misery, the U.S. has done the same in Central America through deliberate policies aimed at propping up a corrupt landowning elite that allies with U.S. leaders with the shared mission of exploiting and oppressing the local population. The cultural give and take is similar too. Just as the Molly Maguires were exported to the U.S., Irish Americans became a base of fundraising and organizational support for the IRA back home. 
Now, street gangs like MS-13, which were founded here, have grown in power there, connected by underground global trafficking networks. To talk more about all of this, we're joined by Jose Luis Sanz and John B. Washington, journalists with El Faro, an international news outlet based out of El Salvador, which has an English-language version you can find at elfaro.net. John Washington is also a contributor to The Intercept, and he translated the book A History of Violence, Living and Dying in Central America, which was written by his El Faro colleague, Oscar Martinez. Sanz is now the Washington correspondent for El Faro. John and Jose, welcome to Deconstructed. Hi, how are you? I'm wonderful, John Washington. Thanks for joining me here. Glad to be back with you, right? So for people who are not familiar with your work, John, obviously, um, probably a lot of our listeners are from your work at The at the Intercept. But, um, and Jose, let's start with you. Can you just tell people, uh, you know, how it is that you got involved in, in Latin American journalism and, you know, what brought you to this place? Well, uh, I'm, I'm Hispanic, as, as you can <laughs> recognize from my uh, <laughs> horrible accent. But uh, <laughs> the thing is, I moved to El Salvador when I was 24, and I have been working in, in El Salvador as a journalist for 22 years. So that, that, that means, obviously, that migration and, and the relationship with the United States becomes part of the day-by-day uh, work because migration in El Salvador in the in whole Central America is, is something that uh, defines the life of uh, mm-hmm. everybody of the countries of uh, the future of the countries is, is tied to to migration. So I just moved to, El, to to the United States as a correspondent, and now I will be more focused in the topic. And John, what about you? Um, well, I've been writing about and. Uh, have been an activist in and around immigration and the border for a long time, for about 12 years. Um, I've been translating. Uh, I started translating Oscar Martinez's books um, starting in 2013 and um, then have since traveled to Central America and written on uh, immigration and asylum for ever, ever since. And my, my book, The Dispossessed, is about mostly about Central Americans seeking asylum in the U.S. and and the extraordinary difficulties that they face in, in so doing. So, John, can you put this current wave that we're seeing in context and in the context of the recent waves over the past several years? Sure. You know, the, the, the broad context is that people from Mexico and Central America have been heading north and heading to the United States for decades, for a century. In the past year, you know, since last March, after about three years of the Trump administration doing all they could to deny, it was a really a concerted attack against asylum. So after three years of that, then they absolutely shut down the southern border. And that was on very specious public health grounds. Mm-hmm. So the system has been shut down for a year. And now as uh, the Biden administration has taken some efforts to re-implement the asylum system, a federal judge in December blocked part of the the Title 42 order, which was was doing exactly that, was like left asylum off the table for everyone who was coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened under the Trump administration. So what we're seeing now is the effect of a buildup of years or decades of migration, a year-long pandemic, which has had catastrophic economic effects on Central America, a couple of hurricanes, which a lot of people are mentioning rightly 
as another motivating factor for people to head north. Um, you know, in November, two hurricanes slammed into Central America. And then that year-long mm-hmm. absolute shutdown um, where people had nowhere else to go but wait and try to wait out the period where they could um, finally make an asylum claim. Finally, they're able to do so, you know, some of them. But I think there's a couple other things I need to put in perspective here is that in 2020, approximately 100 million people crossed the U.S.-Mexico border, many of them, the vast majority of them, without any health checks at all. So that uh, public health, the mm-hmm. public health grounds for blocking asylum seekers, which are a tiny sliver of, of that, that, that huge number, doesn't make any sense. Over the past year, um, over a half a million people have been automatically expelled, turned back without any chance at asking for asylum. 13,000 unaccompanied minors were automatically expelled over the past year without any chance to ask for asylum. That is both illegal under U.S. and international law and putting those people in extreme, putting those children in extreme and mortal danger. I think what it shows is, is the p- political expediency here is that people are, are willing to use the misery and the, the marginalization of children and families to score political points. And then they're, they're cloaking an actual crisis of, that is a humanitarian crisis, and they're trying to just turn it into a, a political war. And, and, and it's, it's, it's quite, quite disturbing. And also, I suspect Democrats in a presidential election year were just fine not to talk about immigration at all. Um, Ho- Jose, what's the rough breakdown of, of home countries among the migrants in this wave? Obviously, mostly Honduras and, and, and Guatemala, but hmm. something is happening and is, is, is interesting. The agreements with Mexico makes the administration, the United States administration, to drop most of the asylo seekers or the Central American and Mexican uh, migrants in, in the other side of, of the border. So most of the, those that are right now waiting here for the decision about that case are from other countries. In I, I was... As I said two days ago in in Ajo, in Gilabend, that area of the Sonora uh, district, and and most of the people that uh, has been processed uh, last weeks are from Venezuela, from Chile, from Ecuador, even from from Brazil. Uh, I met this guy Maxi. He's 24 years old, and he has been uh, migrating for six years. He he's from Venezuela, from Maracaibo, and he first. Moved to Colombia and then from Colombia to Chile and in Chile he made some money to pay the, the flights to come to the United States where his family has been living without uh, documentation uh, without papers for the last six years so mm-hmm. people from other countries not only from the North Triangle are, are, are coming right now right and you, you you mentioned Guatemala John and for people who don't know the the history. Can you run through a little bit of Guatemalan history? You can even start start in the 1950s if you want with the the Dulles brothers and mm-hmm. and Jacobo Arbenz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the United States has been you know using much of Latin America, including Guatemala, as both a laboratory. I think as 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 Greg Grandin um, very uh, succinctly put it to extract resources 
and, and to um, practice and engage in warfare. And in 1954, with backing, direct backing from the CIA, um, a democratically elected president who was instituting much needed and, and, and much demanded by the populace land reforms was overthrown. And even more so since then, you know, the, the country has been in, in political turmoil and that erupted pretty quickly in a 36 year long civil war. Mm-hmm. And the United States played a very heavy hand in that as well. You know, enormous amounts of aid were going to a extraordinary violent military who was engaging in genocide, anti-indigenous genocide. And, you know, that ended only in the 1990s. And so the very much this is a reality that is still being lived by a lot of people that this the fallout from that and the corruption, the elite corporate class who has been able to maintain a stranglehold on much of the rural indigenous population is a dynamic that we're still seeing and is still being upheld, if not directly by the U.S. government, then by U.S. aid and U.S. corporations who are still extracting and exploiting um, the people of that country. And what we're seeing, you know, now is a slightly different iteration of that, perhaps. Um, The United States is more and more focused not on just extraction, but on using Guatemala, as well as Mexico and the other countries of Central America, as a wall, as, as a means of stopping further migration. We've seen this a couple times this year under the Biden administration. Juan Gonzalez, who Jose Luis has, has, has spoken with, praised Guatemala for blocking Hondurans, mostly Hondurans, from migrating north. You know, the United States now is trying to turn Central America and Mexico into its own border. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jose, I want to get your your perspective as as somebody who you know lived in El Salvador for a, for a, a couple decades. You know, as, as John mentioned, uh, a you know pretty gentle uh, effort at uh, social democratic reforms in Guatemala. You know, very popular land reform, which was being done you know with compensation to the to the landowners, was met with violent overthrow, and so uh, it convinced a lot of leftists in. Latin America, that the only way that they were going to be able to bring about change was if they took up arms, that the United States you know, would not allow the ballot box to be used to make any real changes. And Che Guevara was even in Guatemala while that happened. He witnessed that and, and he kind of popularized this idea that, look, you know, you can't trust Uncle Sam. He's going to come for you even if you try to just raise taxes on a couple of oligarchs. Like They're, they're not going to allow any amount of social democracy. And so you 
wind up having these dirty wars throughout the 1980s that lead to these waves of refugees that come north. That's happening at the same time in the United States that we are kind of deindustrializing. Our manufacturing base is collapsing. This is the Reagan era. This is neoliberalism. You're seeing the middle class get hollowed out. You see the rise of, of mass incarceration. You see gangs begin to be formed across the United States. When deportations pick up again in the 1990s or so, you start seeing a lot of gang members deported back to places where they had, some of them had only lived for a year before they came up. And so did you, did you see the influence of the kind of American wave of deportations back into Central America over the last 20 years? And how has that affected the region? Well, I, th I think there are, there are two things. One, of course, the, the deportations change Central America, especially because uh, the United States, States exported um, the, the gangs uh, to Central mm -hmm. America. MS-13 was born in Los Angeles. Uh, mm -hmm. We are talking about American gangs uh, that, that uh, took control mm -hmm. in countries with with weak uh, police force and, and weak uh, institutionality. El Salvador was just coming out from the war when the deportations uh, started and, 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 and raised. So mm -hmm. the relationship with the United States is has, uh, has been kind of uh, strange. The, the homeland security uh, strategies and policies in the states change Central America. Uh, at the same time, is kind of of the safe place where everybody go, uh, wants to go. So it's a cycle that that, that uh, never breaks and, and, and never stops. Uh, John, Oscar's book, one of Oscar's books that you that you mentioned, a history of violence, goes kind of deep into this. Uh, relationship, and you translated that book. Anything you'd want to add to that that particular cycle? Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I think not only the system of uh, migration enforcement is really important to, to take into consideration here, but also the system of incarceration. And that, you know, mm -hmm. Jose Luis mentioned that MS-13 was born in Los Angeles. It was born mostly in Los Angeles area prisons. Mm -hmm. And the reason that, you know, so many people were, were taken up and deported in the first place is because they were criminalized. And you have to look at, you're criminalized in the first place in the United States. And you have to look at the context in which they were criminalized too, is that there had been a decades, and that might be selling it short, long process of criminalizing mostly black residents in the Los Angeles area, which helped form some of the gangs that developed in the prisons there. And then in response to those prison gangs, a, a lot of the recent Latino arrivals or the Central American arrivals formed their own gangs in response as a defensive mechanism. So it, it's not just the uh, deportation immigration process, but the criminalization and um, incarceration process. And then that process was also exported into Central America as has been exported in, in much of the rest of the world. Jose Luis, why do people see no future in, in Honduras? And how, how would you balance just general kind of climate collapse in Honduras against the 2009 coup, you know, the US-supported coup, further destabilized uh, the country? I mean, most of the region in in the in the 90s uh, had some kind of hope. I mean, the civil wars era was 
was ending, mm-hmm. and, and democracy seemed to be the response, the, the, the tool to, to build new countries, finally. Uh, but but the, the democratical projects failed uh, and, or, or, or were subverted. Uh, in the case of El Salvador, mm-hmm. uh, obviously corruption and, and the fail of the leaderships of the country to, mm-hmm. to a, a, an institutional crisis. And in the case of Honduras, corruption, drug trafficking uh, influence in, in politics uh, and, and the, the kind of 19th century elites that you have in Honduras, that is the most conservative mm-hmm. country in, in the region, and that's a lot to say. Mm-hmm. It's not only the 2009 uh, coup d'etat, it's, it's a whole process that never, never uh, went into something close to a democracy. Right, and John, there, there are people who say that, look, you can refer to this as a crisis in the sense that there are there are thousands of people you know, suffering at the moment and any time that that's happening that is that is a crisis but if you think of it as a crisis that is going to abate then you're then you're misunderstanding this that this is the new steady state that that out migration uh, is only going to increase and so if this is the new steady state uh, you know what 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 from a policy perspective can the United States do and so that this is this doesn't become a, a crisis every every year or every two years. That's a really good question. Um, you know, there there are a couple approaches right now that are being proffered by the Biden administration, and they are almost identical to the ideas that were put forth in 2014 when Biden himself was the the Obama emissary to solve the crisis of unaccompanied minors, and. There was a number of new policies that took place. There was a lot of money that, that they tried to raise up to send to the region. Um, not that much went to it, but the one the, the money that did go went to the same institutions that have been, you know, pocketing a lot of it or using it to crack down on on the populations. There was the establishment of the Central mm-hmm. American Miners Program, which is being hailed right now. Again, it was canceled by the Trump administration. It's going to be reinstituted. You know, it's a good idea. It would let people from Central America, miners from Central America, apply for relief from Central America so they don't have to take the dangerous trip. Great idea, but only, I think, less than 3,000 people total actually made use of that program during the Obama administration. So it's not a real solution. Um, You know, one Mm -hmm. of the things that I think is a good sign is that one of the many executive orders that uh, Biden signed in February was to take a very hard look at how climate change is affecting migration out of, out of the region. Um, mm-hmm. There is talk, and, and um, I don't remember the exact language, but there's talk about you know, finding some sort of relief for people who are forcibly displaced because of climate change. Currently, even in, our, even in international asylum law, there is absolutely no way to gain safety or gain refuge if you had to leave because of climate change. And that is a reason a lot of people are having to leave Central America right now. You know, we've mentioned the hurricanes. There's also an ongoing decade plus long drought. There are, you know, like there are not only more heavy storms, but there are uh, crop failures um, and, you know, insect, insect infestations. Mm -hmm. Um, Coffee crops have been devastated in recent years. So I think looking at all these things to avert an ongoing crisis or to understand how to deal with the crisis is to probably let people in. I mean, Mm-hmm. But parts of Central America are 
going to be uninhabitable, especially if we continue to back up uh, narco states and corrupt officials and climate change continues to bear down on the region, which, of course, it's going to. The only reasonable response, I think, is to let more people in. Right, and there's, there's not an endless number of people uh, in, in Central America. And Jose Luis, not everyone in Central America wants to come to the United States. So just as a thought experiment, if the Biden administration or some future administration said, you know what, we're living through a climate catastrophe, the humanitarian thing to do is to take anybody in who wants to come. What's your sense of what kind of percentage of a population in, in various countries would, would actually take advantage of that? Wow, that's a interesting question. <laughs> if, if we take as a basis, uh, as a base, the, the, the polls, uh, around 30% of Salvadorians want to migrate. Probably mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't do it, not, not all of them. But uh, for sure, in the first moment, you will face uh, a, a big number. I mean, and what's the what's the population of El Salvador now? And well, we're talking about uh, six point uh, seven million. Right, so two two million people. It's not a huge. That's not a huge number. Yeah, but but you, you will agree that that numbers, as as John said, are used now as a weapon, and and right. and, 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 and two million in is well, that's a lot uh, in, in in terms of how that can be can be used. Uh, and, and right, the, the the thing is. I, I agree with you. The, the, the thing is the lack of perspective. Uh, I mean, when when Biden saying say said I will open the path to citizenship to 11 million people, I mean that's almost nothing. That's people that is already here and nothing mm -hmm. can happen. I mean, the United States is has not collapsed <laughs> because of that. Not all the people will migrate at the same at the same moment. Not all for the same reasons. Not all with the same abilities. Uh, I mean, you will receive uh, the United States will receive a lot of well prepared people for sure. John, uh, so you, you have seen a lot of Republicans saying that the reason that you're seeing this wave at the border is that Biden has sent signals that people people can, you know, the gates are open, come on in. What's your reaction to that? So I think there's a fallacy there that is something like what we're seeing is more clearly correlation than causation. Because if you look at the Trump administration in 2019, after a couple of years of the most draconian and absolutely restrictive asylum and immigration enforcement that this country has seen in a long time, there was a similar and still at this point greater spike in border crossings. So it doesn't really make sense that White mm. House messaging is driving all of this current increase in migration. Um, it might be a part of it, but I don't think that's exclusively it. Mm -hmm. Did you did you see the uh, the amazing uh, admission from Representative Daryl Issa out in California, who he said at a recent hearing, you know, you you can't uh, give people legal status because then they and their families uh, will no longer work on the farms in California. Yeah, I mean, he is saying out loud the part that people have been saying under their breath for decades. Um, you know, we know that people have been marginalized and kept kept illegal or illegalized in order to reap benefits from them. So, yeah, that that, that is that is something that has been clear and ongoing for a long time. You know, back to um, the the question about solutions, and this is something that Jose Luis was touching on. I think 
you know, this is a step that I think would be at least a good one. And that is to just follow our own laws. And that's what we haven't seen mm -hmm. for a long time. You know, if we could just actually follow our asylum laws right now, I think that there would be a much more humane response to what is going on at the border. A, a very simple, concrete example is the amount of time that minors are allowed to be held in Border Patrol uh, facilities, short-term custody facilities, is 72 hours max. I think that's already a long time mm -hmm. to hold a child in jail in miserable conditions where lights are on 24-7, you know, guards who are mm -hmm. heavily armed and untrained to deal with children are watching over them. But right now, currently, we're seeing kids spend upwards of 10 days in those facilities. You know, just following our mm -hmm. asylum laws, letting people in, hearing out their claims and deciding those claims um, and, and deciding whether or not to grant them status or not, um, and then allowing them an appeal process, all of which is already in U.S. law. I think just following that would be a good step. And that's something that, you know, the law and order cries along the border are, are completely often overlooking. <laughs> right, exactly. Jose Luis, uh, John Washington, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Brian. Uh, thank you. That was Jose Luis Sanz and John B. Washington, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.